story of what happened with Archelaus and the 3,000 people he slaughtered and having the region taken away from him. That historical account is the framework for Jesus' parable. He knows they're familiar with that story. So he tells his own fictional story that has elements of that in it so that they would go, oh, yeah, 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 we, we remember all of this. His story is one about a nobleman who goes off into a distant country to receive a kingdom, just like Archelaus went off to Rome to receive Judea as his region to rule. It's a story where he leaves instructions for his servants to take care of his affairs in his absence. It's a story about how some of his enemies sent a delegation to the ruler to protest the kingdom being given to uh, this ruler. Again, just like the story of Archelaus. So that's the historical context for the passage. And then there are theological uh, implications for us. And there is application to be made. Because what are, are we as the church, the followers of Jesus, what are we supposed to be doing in this time that the Lord is away, ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father. So I'll read for us starting in verse 11. We'll see what Jesus has to say. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minus and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who is ten minus. And they said to him, Lord, he is ten minus. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. We are coming off the back of a, a mission statement from Jesus last week in Luke 19, verse 10. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the mission of Jesus' life on earth. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So he makes that statement, and now they're walking on a 15-mile trip from Jericho uh, to Jerusalem. And then after this, Jesus will enter into the city to the cries of Hosanna. So this is a road we really started all the way back in Luke 9 when Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, and we are drawing toward the conclusion here. Jerusalem is coming. Passover is coming. And it seems like on this walk from Jericho to Jerusalem, Jesus might have been expanding a bit 
on his teaching about his mission to seek and to save the lost. But the people that are with him, including his own disciples, by the way, are confused. As they draw near to Jerusalem, they're not thinking about a sacrificial death. They're not thinking about seeking and saving the lost. They're not thinking about a conquering resurrection. They've got one thing on their mind, a political victory that would see Jesus take Israel back from Rome and the son of David seated on his rightful throne. And they're not wrong about that. There is going to be a time in which Jesus conquers the nations and he takes David's throne, which rightfully belongs to him. They just were wrong about the timing of it. What they did not realize is that the Messiah had to suffer to save God's people before he could conquer on their behalf. Even his own disciples were confused about this. In fact, even after the resurrection, his disciples are still asking questions about the political restoration of Israel. So in Acts 1 verse 6, says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Meaning, Lord, at this time, will you overthrow Rome and sit down on David's throne? Now, they heard all his teaching, and they were confused. So we can surmise that the rest of the crowd that are following that were not a part of Jesus' inner circle, would also be confused. And the confused anticipation is just building with every step that Jesus makes toward Jerusalem. So he tells them a parable to communicate the idea that before he establishes his rule and his reign fully on the earth, he is going to go away, and that while he is gone, he is going to leave work for his people to do. So let's look at the characters we have in the story uh, to begin with. First of all, we've got a nobleman who goes off to a far country. The nobleman represents Jesus in the story, okay? The far country is the right hand of the Father where Jesus has gone and he has taken his seat until his return. Secondly, in this passage, we have ten servants. These servants represent everyone who professes to know Christ. Now, I, I said that very carefully, okay? We're not saying that the servants represent everyone who does know Christ. That would be a different statement. The servants represent everyone who professes to know Christ, who says they are a Christian. They may or may not be, but they say they are a Christian. And then in verse 14, we have these citizens that hate the noblemen, and they send a delegation to the authority in charge, asking the noblemen not to rule over them, much like the Jewish people did with Archelaus about 25 years before this. Now, there are some different opinions out there on who these angry citizens uh, represent, but I will argue that they represent the Jewish people of Jesus' generation, the contemporaries of Jesus who had Hebrew blood flowing through their veins just like him. So these are the characters in the parable. The nobleman is Christ. The servants are all who profess to know Christ. The citizens are the Jewish people of Jesus' generation. So let's get into it. Jesus says this nobleman goes off into this far country to receive a kingdom, just like Archelaus had to go to Rome to be confirmed as the ruler of Judea. This nobleman has to go off. He needs to see some authority to be made ruler over the kingdom he is to receive. 
And as he is going, we find out that there are people who do not want him to rule, so they send a delegation saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. And their reasoning behind it is that they hate him. They just flat out despise him. Now here's why I think that Jesus is talking about his own generation uh, of of Israelites in this passage, his Jewish contemporaries. I, I would say that because throughout the book of Luke, Jesus has been very focused on the generation that is living with him in Israel. Okay, so let's just track back. Luke 7.31 To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? Luke 9, 41, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? And Luke 11 says, When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation." The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation. You skip down. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. In Luke 11, starting in verse 50, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be... It will be required of this generation. And then lastly, Luke 17, verse 25, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. What John tells us in John 1, verse 11, is that Jesus came to his own and that his own did not receive him. The own that we're talking about are the Jewish people of his generation. It started at the top with the Pharisees. They were the religious shepherds of Israel, shepherding Israel through the synagogues. But they hated Jesus. They had developed their own program of salvation that was steeped in works righteousness. And they had all these man-made laws that were to be kept if you were going to receive eternal reward. They created a spiritual culture that barred outcasts from worship in the synagogue. Tax collectors like Zacchaeus from last week, no matter how much fruit of repentance they might show in their lives, they are never to be a part of synagogue life. People born with horrible diseases and disabilities were looked at as sinners. People look at them and say, well, they have this disease, they have this disability because they are a sinner. They have this this disease or this disability because their parents were sinners. And so, in light of that, they would excommunicate those people from religious life in Israel. And with these guys running the synagogues, there was no way for Israel to be insulated from their false teaching. It was insidious. It infected the nation. And there's no greater evidence of the fact that their teaching and their hatred of Jesus had infected the nation than the fact that Jewish people are going to stand up and shout at the Messiah, crucify him when he stands trial. Jesus was embraced by so many people in his life, many of them with saving faith. Some of them, they were just intrigued. They sought him out. They wanted to see the show. But in the end, the vitriol of the Pharisees won out. Their satanic bitterness they had towards Christ became contagious. And right in the midst of Passover, this generation of Israel made a decision to try and murder God. 
So if Jesus is represented by the nobleman in the parable, it only makes sense that the people who hate him would be the Jewish people who crucified him. Those are the enemies here in this parable. The enemies who refuse to be subject to him. If we're still not convinced, let's stop and recall the fact that Jesus has just sought out Zacchaeus, led him to salvation, and all the crowd could do was to be angry that Jesus would pal around with a sinner like him. So you can see in this passage that precedes this one that Israel was setting itself up in opposition to the very heart of the mission of Christ. He was out to seek and to save the lost, and the religious culture of Israel stood up against that mission and said, absolutely not. We will not join you in this. We will not support you in this. We will oppose you in this all the way to capital punishment. They wanted a Caesar conqueror. When Jesus wouldn't get with the program, they rejected his authority as the Messiah. If you skip down to the bottom of the parable, the results of opposing Christ and being his enemy are brutal. They made themselves the enemies of Christ. They're going to be treated like the enemies of Christ. In Luke 19, verse 27, look what the nobleman says. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. The enemies of Christ can try to keep him from taking his throne, but it's not going to stop him. Revelation 19 Starting in verse 11, says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True, and righteousness he judges and makes war. Then you go down to verse 16, On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. He will wear his title as he defeats his enemies. Nothing and no one will be able to stand in the way of the ultimate sovereign rule of Christ over everything that belongs to Him and that He deserves. Satan and his minions will try to stop it, and they will fail. The people of the earth will give their best shot, they will fail. You will not stop the predetermined plan of God in which His Son suffers and His Son dies for His people, and then His Son conquers Satan and defeats sin and death for them. You either confess Him as Lord, and, and I mentioned that Andrew Murray book earlier, you confess Him as Lord and have absolute surrender before Him, or you oppose Him as Lord. And if you oppose Him as Lord, you will be slain in judgment. That's what the Scriptures are telling us here in this parable. So our first point for this morning, if you're taking notes, number one, rebellious enemies of Christ will receive eternal defeat. Rebellious enemies of Christ will receive eternal defeat. It's a violent image in verse 27. We can't shy away from it. The Bible says what the Bible says. The enemies of Christ will be slaughtered. They will be slain. The the Greek word literally means killed off. We talked about what lostness is last week. This verse shows us the end of lostness. The end of lostness is destruction in judgment. And Jesus makes a choice here to use vivid, brutal language. He he uses the word slaughter because he wants us to know the terrible consequences that come from opposing him, the consequences that come from rejecting him. The enemies of Christ will not be slaughtered because Jesus is unloving. Jesus loved Israel. 
In Luke 13, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. He didn't want to slaughter them. He wanted to gather them. He wanted to bring them under the shadow of his wings. We're going to see next week, as we look at the triumphal entry, Jesus on on Palm Sunday or Palm Monday, we'll talk about that next week too, okay? Jesus, as he's heading toward Jerusalem, is weeping. He's weeping over the city as he rides into it to die there. He loved Israel, but if they would not repent and they pressed on with their hateful attitude toward Christ, their souls will be crushed in the wrath of God's rightful judgment. If they would not do what Saul did on the road to Damascus, he hated Jesus, he hated Christianity, he hated the gospel. But when he was confronted with the glory of Christ, he stopped, he repented of his sin, and he put his faith in Christ and no longer counted Christ as his enemy, but he wanted Jesus as his friend. And Jesus took Saul in as his friend and changed his heart and transformed him from the inside out because Jesus loves Israel and he loves to save Israelites. But so many wanted a Caesar conqueror, not a sin conqueror. But they didn't need a Caesar conqueror. They needed a sin conqueror. Jesus was not giving them what they wanted. He was providing them what they needed. And if they did not receive Jesus as their sin conqueror, then they would end up being conquered themselves. Not by Rome, but by the Lord. It's no different for anyone sitting here today. Jewish, Gentile, doesn't matter. If you set yourself up as an enemy of Christ, you'll be treated as an enemy of Christ. Come to him as a friend. Repent of your sin and put your faith in him. Let's keep going. Go back up to verse 19. Look at this nobleman's interactions with his servants there. Actually, you can go go up to verse 15. I'm, I'm sorry. Nobleman receives the kingdom despite the efforts of his enemies. While he's in the far country receiving it, he leaves ten minas in the hands of ten servants. A mina was about three months' wages. This is not a small amount of money. Okay, quarter of your year's earnings. All right, so he, he comes back and he's like, hey, what kind of investment was made? That, that's what he asked the servants. What kind of investment was made with the mina that I gave you, with the quarter of a year's earnings that I gave you? One servant says, took the one, I turned it into ten. Got a tenfold return on your money. And the nobleman says, you got a tenfold return on my money, I'll give you ten cities. In this new kingdom that I've got, I'll give you ten cities to rule. Another servant says, well, I turned my one into five. As a result, he gets five cities. These two servants represent people who say, I know Christ, and then they back it up with how they live. They back it up with how they serve. They back it up by being good stewards of everything that he has given them. By using the gifts that Christ has given uh, us to, to faithfully serve him. A clue as to what the servants should be doing with the nobleman's money, with the minus that he has given to them, is found in the title that they hold. Servant. They are servants to him. And, and the Greek word there is doulos, which actually would more accurately uh, translate to not servant, but slave. They, they are slaves to this man. 
And this word is a picture for who we are as Christians that follow Jesus. Before we met Christ, we were slaves, but we were slaves to sin. In John chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin, meaning sin is their lifestyle, is a slave to sin. Sin's the master. When sin says jump, we say, well, how high? Sin says do this, we say, well, how, how often do you want me to do it? Sin says don't do this, we say, oh, okay, I definitely won't. Sin controls us because from birth, sin is our nature. But as we repent of our sin and we put our faith in Christ, what happens is the Lord breaks the power of sin in our lives and frees us from it so that we are no longer enslaved by sin. Sin is no longer our master. When sin calls out to us and says, you need to obey me, you need to rebel against the Lord and you need to obey me, when Satan tempts us, it used to be that we didn't have a choice. Sin was the master, but now, by the blood of Christ, sin is no longer the master, and we have a choice to rebel against the way that we used to live. We have a choice to rebel against Satan. We have a choice, choice to be rebels to the culture that is around us, and we have the freedom to actually obey Christ because he has taken away our sin nature. Romans 6 explains this and says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So he's taken us from being slaves to sin, and now he has made us slaves to righteousness. And our master as slaves of righteousness is Jesus. That's why Paul, when he's given instructions to slaves and masters in Ephesians 6, he says, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, that there is no partiality with him. Whether you are slave on earth or whether you are free on earth, if you're a Christian, Jesus is your ultimate master in heaven. Whatever your earthly status is, if you have repented of your sin and put your faith in Christ, Jesus is your master in heaven. And what he says goes. He purchased your life with his blood, and the life that you now live, you live to please him. So our second point this morning, number two, faithful followers of Christ will receive an eternal reward. The enemies of Christ will receive eternal defeat. Faithful followers of Christ get eternal reward. If you play out the metaphor of the parable... This is what it looks like to be faithful, like the servants who brought a return of the nobleman's money. You were lost. Jesus, on his mission, sought you out and saved you. That's what the Son of Man does. Once he saves you, he breaks that power of sin and he gives you his Holy Spirit, the helper that he promised. To, to dwell in your heart. And the Spirit dwells, dwells in you and, and the Spirit brings us gifts spiritual gifts, gifts from the Holy Spirit to serve the Lord with. And if you are a faithful follower of Christ, you will demonstrate your faithfulness by taking the gifting He's given you and using it to serve the Lord in the local church, certainly, but also out in the world. And if we spend our life doing this, 
then it will be evidence of the fact that we truly know Jesus and we are saved and we will get a return for the way that we serve the Lord. This is what Jesus wants you to do until he comes back. People ask all the time, what is God's will for my life? And I know what they mean by that. They mean specifically, what does God want me to do with my life? But before you can answer that question, you've got to zoom out and you've got to understand the, the macro picture, the big picture of God's will for your life. The big picture of God's will for your life is until Jesus returns or until he calls you home to glory, you are to take all the gifting he's given you and to use it to faithfully serve him. This is God's will for your life. To use your redeemed life and the gifts of the Spirit to serve Him as your master. That's it. For as complicated as we can make things, for all the the little uh, theological schools of thought we can parse through, what we're supposed to be doing can be boiled down to this level of simplicity that Jesus wants you to take the life he's bought for you and to use it for his glory. It's simple, but it's steep. It's simple, but it's steep. It's simple in the sense that it's not hard to understand, but it's steep in the sense that it's not easy to die to our flesh. It's not easy to wake up every day and say, my agenda doesn't matter, the agenda of the Lord and the agenda of his kingdom matters. If it were easy, the whole world would be doing it. But look how the nobleman rewards these servants. They get a return for their work. Turn the one into ten, you get ten cities. You turn the one into five, you get five cities. And the difference in their rewards tells us that not everybody has the same giftings, and not everybody gets the same returns as they seek to serve Jesus with their life. And since those things are true, not everybody gets the same reward. The parable of the talents in Matthew illustrates a similar truth. But the bottom line is this, is that if there is faithfulness, there is reward. could look different person to person as we all stand before God and account for what we did with this redeemed life that he has given us. But if there is faithfulness, there is reward. Faithfully serve Christ as master in this life, he will faithfully reward you in the age to come. I think this is an incredibly freeing reality for us. Some of you, I I think, probably spend a lot of time, if you're honest with yourself, comparing yourself to other people in the church. Maybe in this church, maybe in other churches, friends you have that attend to other churches, family you have. You might look at people who are able to do A, B, and C in the church and go, man, I wish I was gifted like them. I wish I could do what they do. Or you spend your time looking at how God has gifted other people and called other people, and you think, well, they ought to be doing that better, shouldn't they? If I was gifted like that, I would never do what they do. Right? We can spend a lot of time comparing ourselves to the people around us, but I think what this frees us up to do is to forget all that. Because if you do that, sooner or later, pride and ego is going to sneak in, and it won't take long. Stop the comparison game, which is a very self-absorbed game to play, and instead, just take your head and put it down and and plow the plot of land God's given to you. 
He's gifted you in a certain way, and he's put certain callings on your life. And, and, and don't worry about everybody else so much. It'll drive you crazy. Don't, don't worry about trying to serve the entire world. You can't do it. Just serve the people God has called you to serve and the way he's called you to serve with the gifts he's called you to serve with. Do that faithfully. There's reward. That's what this passage is promising to us. And there's a hint to the nature of the reward too. What is the nobleman doing? Well, he just went and he got a kingdom, and then he comes back and he says, you've been faithful, take some of the kingdom. Oh, you've been faithful, take some of the kingdom. He's handing the kingdom out to his slaves. This isn't normal. This is not the way things typically went in the ancient world. But it's a picture of the inheritance we stand to receive in Christ. This is what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2. He says, The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. We will reign with him. Revelation 20, verse 6, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Jesus shares his inheritance with us by rewarding us with the blessing of reigning with him. And and honestly, this is a theological point that used to make me uncomfortable. It's okay to be uncomfortable at times with theological points. You just need to sort it out. Don't leave the discomfort there. Sort it out. Get comfortable with it if the Bible says it. Get your heart right with it. But it's okay to admit at the beginning I struggle with this. Like when I was getting married and my friend Josh Kappas, who did our premarital counseling, says, just to remind you guys, marriage doesn't go into heaven, right? It's just for this life. When you're about to get married, you don't really want to hear it. You're like, no, no, I'm going to do this forever. Some of you have been married maybe 60, 70 years to the same person. You're going, take me home to glory. You know, I I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe not. No, honestly, the Honestly, my experience of people who've been married that long is that that's not how they feel. But, uh, but I, I, I kid. But yeah, I was kind of uncomfortable with that. This always made me uncomfortable because I'm going, no, no, he reigns, not me. I don't want to reign. He gets to reign. Who am I to reign with him? But the more we read passages like this, we ought to be excited about God's promise here. We're faithful slaves of the Master Jesus, and if we press on then a day is going to come where he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Not just enter in, he's going to say, reign with me. Here, you've been faithful, take some of the kingdom. And then we'll just lay it back down at his feet and glorify him forever. But we get to reign with him. And then finally, we have the servant who was not faithful. In verse 20, he keeps the mina hidden away, he's got it in a handkerchief. Says the master is a severe man who will take more than he invested and reap what he didn't sow. It's very, very similar to Jesus' parable of the talents in Matthew 25. The unfaithful servant in that parable uses the same excuse as to why he did not invest. And, and, and there he just buries it in the ground instead of putting it in a handkerchief. Now, some people say they're the same parables. I, I think there's too many differences. I think they're similar parables that communicate similar truths but told at different times and in different ways. But the nobleman uses his own words against the man. He says, if you think I'm a hard man, wouldn't that have been even more of a reason to take the money and do something with it? Like, you you think I reap where I didn't sow? Then wouldn't you want to make sure that when I came back, you had something to offer up 
At least put it in the bank. You could have got some interest off of it. Give me some passive income here. And then he issues a punishment. He tells those nearby, he says, take the, the, the one from this man and give it to the one who's got ten. And they object. They said, but he's already got ten. And the nobleman says, I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. We can use the context to fill in the gaps of what the nobleman's saying here, right? Everybody who has and is faithful over what they have will be given more. I.e., they'll be given the kingdom to share with Christ. They will reign with Him. But everyone who is not faithful over what they have will lose everything. There will be no reward. They won't even keep the thing they have failed to be faithful over. So, I think Jesus means for the enemies of verses 14 and 27 to represent his Jewish contemporaries who rejected him. But this unfaithful servant represents people who claim to follow Christ but don't serve him. So this is our last point this morning. Number three, unfaithful followers of Christ will receive eternal rejection. World Population Review claims 2.8 billion people on the earth are Christians. You and I know better. Our denomination claims to have 14 million members. You and I know better. The reality is is that there's millions of people who claim Jesus' name and they don't serve Jesus' agenda. They claim Jesus' name, but they're using their life for their own pleasure, their own desires, their own flesh. I mean, listen, as long as we're pointing the microscope somewhere, we can point it at ourselves. We've got about 800 people in the church role here. And there's a bunch of them, hundreds, who are not serving the name of Jesus. They're living their life for their own pleasure, their own desires, their own flesh. Which is why we've got to address that this year. That's why we've got to get that straight. We need a church role that represents those who are truly serving Jesus here at Seaford Baptist Church. And we're going to work on it. But I think that Jesus means to say something to people who run around saying, I'm with Jesus. I'm a Christian. Pastor wrote it in my Bible the day I got baptized when I was seven, whatever. But their life doesn't match up at all with the claim. We would look at the Pharisees and those who follow them. We say, those are the enemies of Christ. And clearly in this text they are. But they're not the only ones opposing the nobleman's kingdom in the text. They're not the only ones impeding the progress of the kingdom. The unfaithful servant is harming the advancement of the nobleman's kingdom by rolling up the mina in a napkin and letting it rot with no return. And Jesus wants us to hear this. He wants us to understand He's going to come back one day and you're going to have to answer for the life that He's given you. And you can't claim to be a slave of righteousness and live as if you are a slave to sin. We can't claim to be servants of Christ and not actually serve Christ. If we try to play that game, what we're going to find is that we lose everything in the end. You want to take your life and roll it up in a handkerchief and just keep it safe? Never risk anything for the Lord. Never really surrender to the Lord. You look around at people that do. You look around and you see people that sacrifice. 
You see people that, that give even above and beyond their tithe. You, you, you see people that were giving up vacation time. They're going on mission trips. They're laying it all down. And you look at them and you go, maybe one day. But right now I'm going to keep this life safe here in this little handkerchief. I'll pay my taxes. I'm not going to hit my spouse or anything. I'm going to be a good citizen. But I'm not going to take this thing out of the handkerchief and really invest it. No, I'm going to play it as safe as possible, holding on to as much of my comfort and convenience as possible. And if we try to play that game, thinking that in doing that, we're holding on to everything, what we're going to find is that after we stand before God in judgment and we try to claim that we are slaves of righteousness, the piercing flames of fire eyes of Jesus are going to see straight through this ruse that you fooled everybody else with. They're going to see straight through it and he's going to judge how we have wasted our lives. He's going to drag out all the evidence that we are not slaves of righteousness, but our lives speak to the fact that we're still slaves of sin, and he's going to take from us everything that we thought we were protecting by keeping it wrapped up in this little handkerchief. Because our unfaithfulness is going to prove we never knew him to begin with. Am I really saying you could spend your whole life around the church, surrounded by gospel witness, surrounded by gospel truth, make a profession of faith, and still end up in hell? I absolutely believe that's what this passage is leading us to conclude. There's tares among the wheat. There's goats among the sheep. There are people who, despite their claim to the contrary, only serve their own selfish desires, only work toward their own goals, and without repentance, one day, they are going to hear hard words from the mouth of Christ. They're not going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. They're going to hear, depart from me, I never knew you, worker of iniquity. So let's be real clear about how the scoreboard reads at the end of the parable. Faithful servants get eternal reward. Unfaithful servants get eternal rejection. Enemies of Christ get eternal defeat. There's only one way to receive eternal reward and reign with Christ, and it's to give Him your life and to serve Him as your master. So what are you doing with your life? I want to close with the fourth verse of the hymn in Can It Be? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. If he awakens you, you follow him. If he saves you, you serve him. What are you doing? How you are using your life will say a lot about where you stand with the master. Let's pray. Father, I pray you'll forgive me for all the times that I, I look at other people's fields. I look at other pastors and their churches, and it's so tempting to look and to think, I bet it's all fine over there. I bet there's no problems. There's no drama. There's no hard things. Lord, keep me focused on my plot of land. Help me to put my head down and plow where you've called me to plow, faithfully, with you as my master, 
every day answering the call to holiness, every day answering the call to service, every day going to bed tired from wringing it all out for you. I'm not there. I want that, Lord. I, I know brothers and sisters in this room want that. I pray, Father, that where you are convicting us today about how we use our time and our talent and our treasure, how we use the spiritual gifts you've given us, that we would not let that conviction go. That, like I prayed at the beginning, that, that what is said here, Lord, would go to the heart and then come to the lips and that we would confess it and that we would live by it. That we would not be the man who looks in the mirror and see that change needs to be made and that we would walk away, but that we would, we would work for the change. That we would work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Trusting that you are preserving us from heaven. This is a great time, Lord, to commit to serving you. This is a great time to step it up. Not trying to earn our salvation, but instead... Um, seeking to, to get a return on the redeemed life you've given us. It's a great time, Lord, here at Easter to invite our friends and family to church, to use our spiritual gifting to find creative ways to, to ask people that don't know you to come and sit with us in two weeks when we're here in this room, to come to the egg hunt, or to come to Good Friday. Lord, it's, it's a great time as we enter into spring and everything's blooming and everything feels new and the weather is warming up. It's a great time for us to recalibrate our lives and to put faithful service to our master at the top of the list. May today be a day of repentance for us. Father, there's two other people in the room I just want to pray for quickly before we close. Uh, one is the group that says they follow you, but they do not serve you. And unfortunately, Lord, a lot of these people are not in the room. We've got a lot of people, Lord, that are, that are sitting at home this morning. Some of them, COVID, wrecked their faith. They were at church every Sunday, and COVID took it away. A pandemic came, and they abandoned the church. God, it's time to repent. I pray that people would look at their lives and, and say, there's so many things going back to normal. Where's my faith? The people who have not darkened the doors of the church for years, maybe even decades, Lord, that, that you would convict them and bring them back and you would use us to go out to them, Lord, and to love them and to implore them to come back. And then finally, God, we pray for those that just flat out, they don't know you, they don't profess to know you, they're lost, they have enmity against you in their hearts. And we might look at people like that and think the path is too hard, the seed will never get to a heart like that, Lord, but what seems impossible with man is possible with God. Break through God and may there be faith where there is lostness. That there would not be destruction, that there would be salvation in, the, in, in those lives. And again, use us to go and tell, use us to go and love and to serve. Application to be made all around, Lord. Don't let us miss it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.